Episode 65, Barbed Wire. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an October 8th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. They say when it has separated neighbor from neighbor, marked boundaries, and divided nations. But first, it fenced in cattle. It's barbed wire, and after it appeared in the 1870s, this simple invention rolled out across the American West, forever changing the landscape and culture. Join museum director Bob Keckeisen and me as we examine barbed wire. Though simple in appearance, this ductile use of steel has sparked family feuds, ignited patent disputes, and fueled the ambitions of steel magnates. Find out how barbed wire changed the world. Then, curator Blair Tarr previews the 2009 exhibit Lincoln in Kansas at the Kansas Museum of History. To commemorate the 200th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth, the museum is opening an exhibit that examines his connection to Kansas. More than just a fan of a staunchly Republican state, Lincoln had family ties here. At least, that's what some claim. Finally, join us as we connect William Allen White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Niagara Falls, a New York waterfall with nearly unlimited hydroelectric generating capacity. Find out who generated more hot air when we play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Mark. Today we are going to talk about a technological innovation that has literally changed the landscape of the high plains, barbed wire, or as some call it, devil's rope. Uh, This simple and cheap innovation has housed livestock, separated neighbor from neighbor, marked boundaries, and even divided nations. Well, wait wait a minute. I I thought I was here to talk about the classic 1996 Pamela Anderson movie, Barbed Wire. No, Bob, that wasn't at all the barbed wire I was oh, talking about, okay. or the barbed well, wire. I'll, I'll do my best to Although a quality film. Here. Yeah, yeah, that's good, you know. <laughs> Pamela right. Anderson, Bounty Hunter, you know, what more could you want? So it's so. completely logical. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bob, okay, I'll do, I'll, do, I'll do fencing, though, that's okay. Okay. Um, what exactly is barbed wire? What qualifies something as barbed wire, and what is its function? Oh, okay, well... <clears throat> Basically, it's a it's a wire that's used in fence construction, and as the name implies, it um, uh, differs from a smooth wire fence in that the wire has sharp points or barbs attached to it at intervals along the wire, and basically any type of wire used in fencing that has some kind of barb or point or some kind of device designed to discourage animals or people from coming into contact with it or scaling it. Uh, I guess it would be more people scaling a fence than, than cattle trying to scale a fence. Uh, but that's basically classified as barbed wire. So it's a, it's a wire fence with, um, with barbs on it. Some, t- some sort of poking device that inflicts yes. pain. Yeah. yeah and to, to says, keep the animal away. Says stay away. <laughs> uh, who, first, uh, who, first who first developed barbed wire? Because it, it hasn't really been around all that long, has it? 
No, it was uh, patented in 1874, so really, you know, in, in the historical sense, not that long. But like any first, there's some disagreement over who first developed it or invented barbed wire, but generally the accepted father of barbed wire was Joseph Glidden, and Mr. Glidden was from DeKalb, Illinois, and he got that first patent in 1874, but there were two other um, men from the same area, and evidently they all attended the same county fair and had seen a device that sort of gave them the idea for this. And you know, for the next um, ten years or so, um, they were you know kind of putting their wire into production and kind of fighting over who really first came up with it. And there were lawsuits back and forth and all this. And even though Glidden is generally considered uh, to be the inventor of barbed wire. Um, at least one of the other two guys uh, you know, went to his grave claiming, you know, no, he was the actual inventor of barbed wire. But, um, but I think I'll go with the majority of folks and say Joseph Glidden, DeKalb, Illinois. Um, today, millions of miles of barbed wire cover the American West. How do you explain its rapid and far-reaching dispersion in the late 19th century? Because like you said, I mean, it starts out in a, in a little county fair mm -hmm. and it is not long before almost the entire West is covered with this stuff. Um, and before, what, did, what, what were people using before barbed wire? Well, before barbed wire, most people were using lumber to construct wooden fences. Um, again, back in New England, you, know, you might see stone fences. Those are incredibly labor intensive and you have to have you know, the, the materials for it. But in the 19th century out in, in Kansas and, and many parts of the Great Plains, lumber in large quantities wasn't around and what there was was prohibitively expensive. So most consumers, most farmers were looking for you know something inexpensive to get their uh, land fenced. And it really is ideally suited to the landscape of the Great Plains and the you know wide open spaces in Kansas. Um, it's not expensive to put out there. It's uh, durable. It can withstand prairie fires. I mean, That's it might burn the fence right post, but the wire pretty much you know stays. Unless you use, unless you lose, use post rock. Uh, yeah, use post rock and fence and barbed wire. Of... Yeah, you get up into north central Kansas to see a lot of post rock, which is limestone uh, fence posts with with barbed wire around them, and so it really becomes widely used um, between 1875 and 1885. Um, the national consumption of barbed wire. Um, went from 300 tons made in 1875 up to 130,000 tons. So, you know, it, it quadruple, oh, more than quadruples in less than 10 years. And so you, so you were talking a little bit about um, the, it's sort of linked to the growth of the cattle industry. Is that yeah. right? And with the growth of the cattle industry, that created a booming barbed wire industry, yep. which is kind of funny to think about, a, <laughs> a barbed wire boom. <laughs> um, okay. But there was one company that kind of dominated that barbed wire market, and that's Washburn and uh, – do you know how to say this name, Bob? I think it's Meon. Washburn and Meon Manufacturing Company, which was based um, back east, where a lot of the steel companies were based. Sure. And they were all – there was a lot of them that were getting into the production of wire and barbed wire. Um, but again, Washburn and Meon Manufacturing Company. Today, many Kansans will recognize Ichabod Washburn's name because there is a university here in Topeka named Washburn University. It's one of the premier yep. law schools in the state. Yep. Bob, what is a law school in Topeka, Kansas doing with the name of a barbed wire magnet from <laughs> Massachusetts? 
Essentially, what is now Washburn University was founded right here in Topeka, Kansas in 1865 as Lincoln College, and it was a congregational school, and they founded this college in 1865. Interestingly, on um, the corner of 10th and Jackson Streets, which was the uh, one of the original homes for the State Historical Society, where you and oh, I really? now work. Uh, so where the Memorial Building is, for those of you that know Topeka, where the Memorial Building is, that's where Lincoln College was located. Uh, like a lot of fledgling institutions, particularly schools, it had a tough time in the first few years getting enough funds to, to operate. When did you say it was started? 1865. So this is right at the end of the Civil War. So this is one of the first universities yeah. in the state. There's not a mm -hmm. whole lot of them there by that time. Yeah, it's one of the early schools, and um, they were having you know trouble getting going and or, or you know maintaining. So their uh, president is out you know hitting the hustings looking for money, and Ichabod Washburn, who owns one of the major wire barb, barbed wire manufacturing companies in the in the country, uh, is a congregationalist. And they went to Washburn and said, "Would you like to help us out here at Lincoln College?" And he said, "Certainly, he would." Love to do that. Uh, gave them twenty five thousand dollars, which in that's a pretty good chunk of change. That is a princely sum. In fact, it was such a nice sum that uh, they not only took his money, they renamed Lincoln College for Washburn. So it is now Washburn, and then later becomes Washburn University. And interestingly, not only did they name the college Washburn, but the school's mascot is now the Ichabods. Yeah, yeah. He's and kind of a Notre Dame Irishman-looking little guy. Yeah, he, he's kind of a dandy sort of looking fellow on a top hat and a cut little away, like the Monopoly man. Yeah, cutaway coat, and he is the Ichabod. And a lot of folks um, who come through Topeka or here of Washburn University always say, well, what, what's an Ichabod? Why do you guys have an Ichabod as your mascot? It's sort of like if you go to University of California, Santa Cruz, who has the banana slug as their mascot. Uh, you know, kind of an unusual one. You know, it's not up there with wildcats and tigers and... Uh -huh. Over the years, barbed wire has become a collectible. Oddly enough, it's weird to think of barbed wire as a collectible. Um, what is there to collect with barbed wire, Bob? I mean, it's barbed wire is barbed wire. What, what are you going to collect? Um, we did an exhibit here at the museum a number of years ago about uh, collectors and what they collect. So first, people will collect most anything. But interestingly, there, there are uh, widespread uh, collections and collectors of barbed wire because you think barbed wire is barbed wire, but when it first came on the scene, um, it was pretty easy to make and replicate, and you didn't have to make too many changes to get around patents. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of varieties of barbed wire. In fact, there's over 500 uh, official patents. And yeah, there, there are different kinds of, of wire that not only you know, changes the barbs, but there's a particular type of um, barbed wire we have in the collection here at the Kansas Museum of History that's called like a ribbon wire, and it looks like it just has little slices in it mm -hmm. that so that the, the barbs kind of run parallel to the wire rather than sticking out perpendicular from it. Um, and you know that was enough of an innovation again to get a separate patent on that. And there were um, five different uh, styles of barbed wire that were patented by Kansans. Well, uh, Bob, sadly, um, barbed wire has applications beyond cattle. Yes, it does. Um, what is the legacy of barbed wire, not just in Kansas but around the world? I guess you can look at it two ways. It either keeps cattle out or it keeps cattle in, depending on which side of the fence you're on. Uh, hey, you know, nice pun. Yeah, 
Oh, huh, there you go. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> I'm so clever. Anyway, uh, they, um, you know, a lot of farmers put up barbed wire to keep cattle out. Because if you had free grazing next to your land, you were interested in keeping the, the cattle off your land. But as free-range cattle uh, becomes less and less and it actually gets outlawed, then ranchers are using barbed wire to fence their cattle in. So that's, that's its first application, is to either keep cattle in or out. Um, interestingly, barbed wire not only works for cattle, but it works for people too. So it's been used in um, military installations and as a barricade. Not so much um, in official military usage, probably until about the First World War. Mm -hmm. And you saw a lot of barricades being set up with, with barbed wire in the First World War. So it was, it was used to try to impede the progress of troops as well as to protect your own um, fortifications. So again, just sort of like keeping cattle out or keeping cattle in, it's used to barricade troops from coming in as well as to protect your own position. So, so Bob, as you mentioned, in La Crosse, Kansas, there is a um, fascinating museum dedicated yes, to barbed is. wire. In fact, with over 2,000 pieces on exhibit at one time, you can go in and see 2,000 pieces of barbed wire. Um, some would call La Crosse, Kansas, the barbed wire capital of the world, although there's some that would really debate that. In addition to, um, in addition to the wire, the barbed wire museum possesses one other rather bizarre twist on the use of barbed wire. Can you explain the barbed wire nest? You would think that humans would be the only people who actually use and manipulate barbed wire, but evidently uh, ravens, uh, essentially large, large crows, uh, ravens uh, have also used barbed wire. Um, back in the 1960s, there was an um, engineer for the Missouri Pacific Railroad by the name of Leo Shugart, and he uh, had discovered in a tree in Greeley County this unusual object, which on closer examination turned out to be a raven's nest built of barbed wire. Disgusting. Evidently, ravens found little pieces of barbed wire, either, you know, as you put up barbed wire and have to snip it off as it's being uh, erected. Uh, the ravens found these scrap pieces of barbed wire and built this incredible nest entirely out of barbed wire. Yeah. And Mr. Shugart noticed it and collected it um, and donated it to the Kansas Barbed Wire Museum in La Crosse, Kansas, uh, back in the early 1970s. And uh, I understand you've actually seen this. I have right? actually seen it. And and we're looking at a picture of it right now. It is, it's not light either. It's not like a small bird's nest. It no. is a he heavy bundle of wire. But you can tell that it was, and, and uh, you know, I sometimes put things, people put stuff on exhibit and they maybe don't know the full story, mm -hmm. but I would say that I'm 100% sure that this actually is a raven's bird nest just because of the irregular shape of it, but you can clearly see that it was shaped by a bird to be a nest. Oh, yeah. I, I think if you were going to try to fake something like this, it wouldn't look this uh, thrown together because, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing that the birds were able to put this together, but, you know, it's not like they're engineers or anything, but it's still pretty impressive that, that they've I, I would not want to mess with a bird that built that nest. No. In fact, that, I think, is what is most disturbing about it, is what kind of bird built this nest? This would be one 
bad bird. This 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 would not be a bird you want to run into in a dark no, alley. No, probably keeps pieces of the barbed wire under his wing or something. I, I'm not messing with that bird, yeah. and I think that that is a clear indication that Hitchcock was on to something when <laughs> yeah. he made that movie, The Birds, because they uh, that ain't right. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for telling us about barbed wire, and thanks for telling us about um, the uh, barbed wire museum in the Cross. It's my pleasure. From January to July 2009, the Kansas Museum of History will be showing the exhibit Lincoln in Kansas. Um, Blair Tarr, you curated this exhibit. Um, why is the museum opening a Lincoln exhibit at this particular time? Well, the lesser reason is that we'll be opening on January 29th, which is Kansas Day, and we always need to have an exhibit up for Kansas Day, or special exhibits. So. Yeah. But the main reason is is that on February 12th, 2009, that will mark the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, and there is a national observance going on for this event. Uh, there is a commit national commission, and they're encouraging this various states to do what they can to make note of Lincoln and his historical importance. So you're saying this won't be the only Lincoln exhibit people... No, it'd be um, nice to say that we will be outdoing Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois, but I suspect that won't be quite true. <laughs> yes, yes, they, they will probably be doing more. Yes. Um, well, the thing is, is Lincoln was in Kansas only once in 1859, isn't that correct? That's correct. Uh, what was he doing here, and what sort of impression did he have of Kansans after his visit? And better yet, what sort of impression did Kansas have of this future president? Uh, he came out here because, well, he was invited by a certain group of Republicans. Uh, the 1860 presidential campaign was coming up, and there were those that were touting him as a presidential candidate. Those Republicans that invited him were trying to gain interest in their candidates in the, for territorial offices against those other Republicans who favored William Seward of New York, who, oddly enough, eventually became Lincoln's Secretary of State. Lincoln himself was apparently somewhat impressed with what he saw. He didn't see a lot of Kansas. He was really up in the northeast corner along the river, Elwood, Leavenworth, Atchison, and Troy, I believe it was, and didn't get any further into the state. But he was impressed with what he saw of Leavenworth and Atchison and later recommended to a lawyer that if this was a good place for a young man to go to if he was just starting out. And if he would said if he would go west, I would go to Kansas. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Lincoln yes. quotes. <laughs> if I were to go west, I would go to Kansas. Um, will this exhibit explore more than just Lincoln's visit here the, the one time? What we're going to try to do besides taking a look at the 1859 visit is to uh, take a look at some of the things that happened during Lincoln's administration and how that affected Kansas. And of course, that included the Civil War, which had its effect on Kansas. In fact, Kansas had its effect on the Civil War, for that matter, from the territorial period. Uh, there are things such as the Homestead Act, which brought a lot of settlers to Kansas, uh, which was a major piece of legislation. And there's also things like the Land Grant Act for colleges, which I'm that sure this a, will really please you. brought about <laughs> the premier institution, the premier educational institution in Kansas. Well, it brought about Kansas State University anyway, yes. It's exactly. <laughs> oh, and also uh, we'll be looking at personalities, too. Uh, there are a number of people that knew Lincoln while he was president that either were Kansans then or had been Kansans or would become Kansans later. 
And that sort of ranges from Senator Jim Lane to Boston Corbett, who shot Lincoln's assassin and later yes. came here after the war. Do you think Lincoln was well-received here in Kansas? Was he a popular a popular politician here? I think he was, in spite of the fact that the Seward candidates won the election. Uh, even uh, one of the proponents for the Seward candidates, John Martin, who later led the 8th Kansas in the war and was governor of Kansas, he had a newspaper in Atchison, went to hear Lincoln speak, and didn't print anything in his paper because he was so much of a Seward candidate about Lincoln. But he, he did admit that Lincoln's arguments were such that he really couldn't argue with them. They were well stated and put forward in the best possible way. So, Well, back to the, uh, back to the exhibit itself, Blair. Tell us, if you were to list your top three most impressive objects in this exhibit, what would, be, what would they be? What are the uh, must-sees in this exhibit? Because there's, there's some interesting stuff here. There are some interesting things. And uh, uh, one is what we call the Lombard Banner. Uh, this is from actually the 1858 Senate debate with Stephen Douglas in Illinois. Um, another grouping of our artifacts are the campaign medals and pins, which are a little different from uh, the ones we have today, uh, which is not surprising in some way. They're kind of tiny, not the big ones that could expand out to about 72 feet or so of pictures of both candidates. Uh, but they do represent uh, uh, things that their, his supporters would wear. Uh, the third item is kind of a grouping of artifacts, too, and it actually deals more with Lincoln's death. Now, we don't have the Lincoln death car or anything like that, but... Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. That would be an interesting story, though, I'm sure. Uh, but we have a, a fragment of a program from Ford's Theater the night of the assassination that has what is reputed to be a drop of Lincoln's blood and also, getting back to someone we mentioned earlier, we have Boston Corbett's cartridge box. Now, we don't know if it's the one that he was carrying when he was he shot John Wilkes Booth, but it is a military issue, so it seems like a good bet that it is the, the one he had. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about the uh, Lincoln in Kansas exhibit. And just think, by January 2009, when this opens, by then we will know if another... Um, Kansas, or another Illinois senator has become president. That's true. All right, or thanks. not. <laughs> thanks, Blair. You're welcome. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Sarah Price. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> and Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we are connecting William Allen White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Niagara Falls, a massive waterfall that straddles the international border between Ontario, Canada, and New York State. Have either one of you guys been to Niagara Falls before? No. No? no? Okay. Me neither. Um, general background, uh, the falls... Uh, were formed during the last ice age as glaciers moved through the area. It now serves as an outlet from the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, though not the tallest waterfall, Niagara Falls is very wide. Just How like wide is it? Just, <laughs> just like Sorry. William L. White, is that what you said? Sorry. Well, you guys were burning for that joke this whole time. <laughs> It is the most powerful waterfall in North America, however, and roughly 4 million gallons run over the crest of the waterfalls 
every minute, and that's the average. That's not the high point. Along with its beauty, the falls is known for its ability to produce hydroelectric power. It's very powerful.、Um, Europeans first laid eyes on the falls in the 1600s. Tourism really didn't pick up until roughly the 1700s,、um, when people like、um, Napoleon, Napoleon's brother, went there.、Um, what'd you say, Aaron Burr's daughter went there?、Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, and now it's kind of the honeymoon spot, right? That's where a lot of people go on honeymoons. So that's a little bit of the background on、uh, Niagara Falls. Sarah, I believe you have a connection between William Allen White and Niagara Falls. I think I do.、Um, in 1883, Niagara Falls Power Company hired George Westinghouse of the Westinghouse Electric Company.、Um, he was an inventor and rival of Thomas Edison, and they hired him, him to design a system to generate alternating current. George Westinghouse was a neighbor of Henry Clay Frick, while both lived in Pittsburgh. Frick. Yes, Frick. Both, they both lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Frick was an American industrialist and art patron, and Westinghouse supposedly wired Frick's mansion. Wow, that's、Hen- pretty cool. Your house is wired by George Westinghouse. <laughs> <Yeah> . Henry <laughs> Clay Frick was a former friend of Theodore Roosevelt, and contributed fifty fifty thousand dollars to the Roosevelt's nineteen o four presidential campaign in hopes of buying his loyalty. Roosevelt had been using his executive powers to break up monopolies, and unfortunately for Frick and other robber barons, he continued his trust-busting activities after winning the election. And of course, Roosevelt was a friend of William Allen White and visited White and his family in their Emporia home. Nice, very nice. nice. There's a listener in Eldorado right now who's like, "Ugh, Teddy!" Because she's using Roosevelt <laughs> again. Yes, I'm sorry, I had to find. But that's、I'd- all right, you know. <laughs> you do what you got to do. <laughs> Okay,、um, I really had a joke related to Mr. Frick's last name, but I'm not going to use it. Best to let、uh, it go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right,、uh, Nikayla, I believe you also have a connection. Yes, and I'm using William Allen White's other best friend.、Um, in 1922, Harry Houdini made a silent film at Niagara Falls called A Man Beyond, and also in、uh, Niagara Falls, Canada, is the location of the Houdini Magical Hall of Fame, which at one time housed、um, objects used by Houdini and his magic tricks.、Um, as we know from previous podcasts, Houdini was interviewed by Edna Ferber in、uh-huh, their hometown、uh-huh. of Appleton, Wisconsin, and Edna Ferber was good friends with William Allen White. Are you sure Houdini was from Appleton, Wisconsin? Well, he may or may not have been.、There's、he a, may have been from Hungary. It's a bit of a mystery. <laughs> All right. So there you go. You guys found a connection. Impressive.、Um, and unfortunately, William Allen White didn't go over the falls in a barrel, which is、no. what we're hoping for. But you know, I, I can't. I can't verify that William Allen White didn't actually go to the falls himself. He may have been there. As much as he traveled, that would be. And I,、mm-hmm. I, I found two references where he referenced the falls in his books. Really? What was、mm-hmm. he saying about it?、Uh, I can't remember exactly.、Hmm. So he that it was big he and was, watery. Yeah. <laughs> it's wider than it is tall. <laughs> Just like William Allen White. Right. <laughs> Um, Sarah, would you like to introduce the challenge for our next episode? Certainly. In two weeks, we want you to connect William Allen White to the Oakland Raiders, known for their questionable play. This NFL, NFL team <laughs> began in the 1960s and since then has teetered between Oakland and Los Angeles. Right. So, if you think you can connect William Allen White to this、um, team of、uh, pirate-like. <laughs> Questionable playing <laughs> NFL athletes.、Um, just give, a, just send us an email at podcasts at kshs dot org. That is podcast with an S.
that's it for episode 65, Barbed Wire. If you would like to see images of Barbed Wire, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Travel down the Oregon Trail could be dangerous. In 1848, near Wamigo, Kansas, the journey turned deadly. Come back in two weeks when collections development specialist Donna Ray Pearson examines a tombstone from S.M. Marshall. Marshall died of cholera while heading west, but he wasn't the only one. Turns out cholera killed thousands on the trail, but many seem to die at the same spot as Marshall. Find out why in the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.